I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. All this week, I've had the chance to speak with some of the extraordinary people who have been named to the Order of Canada. We do this every year on this program in the first week of January. And this year's list includes one name that music fans will definitely recognize, George Strombolopoulos. He's the host of The Strombo Show on Apple Music. He's had a three-decade career as a broadcaster, and that includes hosting programs on Much Music. And here at the CBC, and George is with me in studio. George, good morning. Only you could get me to come back in this building. We're glad that you're here. It's nice to see you, man. Congratulations. uh, Thank you. Thank you. As I said, I I, I saw your name on that list and was delighted to see that. Um, How did you find out? How does does one find out that that they've been named to the Order of Canada? Uh, But I don't know how long ago. Maybe it was a month ago or three and a half weeks ago, something like that. I got an email from the Gigi's office Mm -hmm. saying, can you give us a call uh, about the Order of Canada? Now, I actually sincerely thought it was because I have been writing letters and advocating for this one particular Canadian musician who I believe should get the Order of Canada. I actually thought they were emailing me to talk about that as a follow-up. And I was hoping he would finally get the Order of Canada. And then when she said it was for me, I had a moment of pause because I couldn't compute. And I went, well, eh? And she said, it's for you. And I went, oh, oh, that's cool. Thank you. Like that, that's exactly how it went. It was a, an email, a quick phone call. And then she said, don't tell anybody. I went, okay, cool. That's it. And Beyond it being cool, what did it mean to you? This, we've asked people this question and the response has been, Often really dramatic. I mean, for them, for family members, for, I mean, for you and for your mom. I mean, what does it mean? I told my mom she laughed because she thinks it's funny. And she thinks it's funny that this little or troublemaking kid, you know, first generation Canadian, she immigrated here years ago. She just thinks it's funny, the career trajectory. If I'm being really honest with you, and I, and I will be with you, Matt, I, I do think it's nice and I'm, and I'm very grateful for it. But I, I know, and you know this, doing this business for a long time, we get more of the uh, praise and attacks than we deserve when you're the front person mm-hmm. of a band, which is what we are. The only thing that I take from it personally is that for the most part, I've done this career on my terms. Mm-hmm. I have not changed who I, I am. And whenever I've stretched those boundaries in a way that didn't feel authentic, the gig never worked. So I know that it's me and I've, and, and, and that I, I feel comfortable with who I am as a you know, as a person in this industry, but I know that this is really a reflection of a lot of the amazing people I got to learn from, got to work with, got to teach, got to grow with, because I'm not the kind of person that thinks of any personal accomplishment as a personal accomplishment. There's no such thing, I think, in our game. When you were a kid, what, what did you grow up thinking that this was even on the radar, that you could be somebody who talked into a microphone and that no. people would hear you or see you? Or No, no, no. In fact, I don't even think anybody in my family ever asked what I would do for a living. We, we, we're not, we're that group of, you know, really below the poverty line immigrants in the west side of Toronto that don't have careers. We had jobs. So mm-hmm. my grandmother, my baba wanted me to be a bus driver because she said, you can get in the union and you could sit down for a living. This is the kind of stuff that, <laughs> so <laughs> she, no, knew. she knew definitely. So I, no, of course not, never. Uh, when Much Music first reached out to me, I told him I didn't think I wanted to work there. When CBC first reached out to me, I think I turned the job down three or four times before I took it. I'm just not the guy that makes these kinds of choices. I, I never think of myself 
you know, in that way. So no, definitely when I was a kid, not at all. Is it true that you had a job dressed up in the lizard costume? Is this correct? Yeah. My first legal radio job. I legal. worked at, I had an illegal radio station uh, in Rexdale. Like pirate radio? Yeah. In the pre-internet days. So, yeah. so this guy that I went to school with stole the plans for a transmitter built an illegal transmitter and then we set it up in a mall in the Albion mall in Rexdale <laughs> and we did shows for the Christmas season. But then I got an internship out of college in Kelowna at a rock station and they liked me and they gave me a metal show called high voltage. And I made it really heavy, really metal, really punky, but they knew that I was broke. So they offered me the one job at the radio station nobody wanted, which was to wear the lizard costume mascot and hand out tickets at events. And I, they paid me 10 bucks an hour. I think at the time McDonald's had a special where two Big Macs for two bucks. So I lived off the hat because I made no money. And I was honestly a lizard wearer. And it was one of the highlights of my career. It was so fun. You, uh, you mentioned much music. Mm -hmm. When you were on much music, um, describe the era of music at that point. What was going on and what did, what did what you were doing there, what role did it play in the conversation? When I worked at Much Music, I got to host a show called The New Music. Yeah. And that was the show where, you know, when I was a little bit older than the other VJs they had hired. I had a little bit more experience interviewing people. So they put me in front of some really interesting people. That's where I got to meet and work with, you know, you two and Joe Strummer and Bowie and people like that. And, you know, coming across Patti Smith and just legends. And there's two other things that really stand out to me. Number one, how free we were. The bosses at Much, for the most part, hired people that knew music, understood culture, cared about the audience, and let us go. Which is why we watched it. Yeah, totally. Right. And, I, and I don't even think people really knew at the time, couldn't put a word on what it was about us. But I remember how all the musicians would come to us and they would, they would say it either directly or indirectly that we were very different than what MTV was doing. The other thing I remember was... Napster had been around for a minute, but you could see the collapse coming. This is, I mean, for people who aren't of that vintage, the, the first kind of example of music being shared online and you didn't have to pay for anything. Everything was available and totally. you could grab what you wanted. Totally. And we saw, we saw the industry collapse about two years into my much music time there. But the, the thing that really stands out is just how much fun we all had because it was a passion for us. Honestly, television to me was never interesting to me sharing music was interesting to me at the time. And music to me is ideas and politics and culture and all that. But at much, it was so free, Matt. Like the things we were able to get away, yeah. get to go up to Pangnertung up in Baffin Island and talk to kids about literacy and talk about music with them and then head down to Los Angeles and try not to get into a fight with Fred Durst from Limp Bizkit and then go on, the, on a tour with Ozzy Osbourne just after 9-11 and listen to Ozzy share his thoughts on the Twin Towers falling. It was just a wild, wild time. And remember pre-social media. So this was still the way you could reach people. And the, the only downside to social media in terms of how artists can directly reach their fans is they can do it without any accountability. Yeah. They can just say whatever they want. But back then at Much, we were encouraged. We're not a promo wing for the artist. We actually represent the audience. And they leaned into it. The artists totally, leaned into that, right? Totally. And they'll meet you at your presence if you stand up for yourself and you knew what you were talking about. So I got into lots of great conversations with people because in that era, they, they, it wasn't so manufactured. It was really, really honest. So let me ask you, I mean, you've done a lot of interviews. The kind of lightning round is who, do you remember who your favorite conversation was with? I interviewed June Callwood, this legendary Toronto activist. I interviewed her a few days before she passed away. And that was supposed to be that interview. She, she, she knew this was her final. That one stays with me. She taught me a lot of life lessons. Mike Fox, Michael J. Fox is maybe the best of us. The coolest person I ever interviewed, honestly, I think is John Waters. I think John Waters, when I, when I got to interview him, I just thought, I think you win. It's all on your terms. You're interesting. You're not entirely confident in what you do, but you do it anyway. 
John Waters was super cool, but Mike Fox and June Callwood are the ones that really, really resonate with when me. When were you starstruck? I don't know that I've ever been starstruck, to be honest with you. Maybe the first time I met Eugene Levy. So like the SCTV. Because you grew up watching SCTV. Oh, SCTV was so crucial to me. So maybe the SCTV guys, the first time I got to hang out with Joe Strummer really impacted me. But I, I wasn't really, honestly, I remember the first time I met Peter Mansbridge. And I thought, oh my God, that's Peter Mansbridge. <laughs> it was pretty exciting to me. Uh, and I just walked in here. And I, like I said, I haven't been in this building in a long time. And I saw the Mansbridge Hall. And I went, attaboy, that's it. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. What did you learn about interviewing? There's a little clip that circulated. We actually played some of it yesterday from a senior's home in Rexdale. What did you learn about interviewing by going to the senior's home in Rexdale that your mom used to drop you off at where you would have to spend time with people? Yeah, that's right, because she couldn't afford a babysitter so that they were my babysitters, even though they didn't know. What I learned is that listening is important, but it's only valuable if the intention is there. And the intention that my mom had for me there was your job is to be good company and your job is to learn and your job is to connect with human beings because it's kind of the only thing that matters. And she was very, very clear to me about that. When I went to that senior citizen's home, because I was just in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and I went, I want to go see this. I was like, right, this is the place where my mother really baked into me. She used to call me Bucky. She said, Bucky, you got to be there for other people. It's the only thing that matters. And so I think that that allowed me to sit across from people in those red chairs here. And they got a sense for me right away that, oh, yeah, there's no pretense. This guy's actually here with me. And I think that was always the case. What did you learn about yourself during the Hockey Night in Canada experience? This is like a dream job. Yeah. Doesn't last. Yeah. And was a very public doesn't last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you learn about yourself in going through that? Uh, that I was on the right page. That you were on the right page? Hell yeah, that I was doing the right thing. How quickly did you realize that? I, I knew it right away. I knew it right away because uh, what, what, I, what I realized, okay, when, when I got offered that job, I told them, you don't want this. You guys don't want me to do this. And they said, yes, we do. And I said, no, you don't. Because I don't think you have the stomach for this. And they said, yes, we do. So I said to them, here's what we should do. I'll do it on two conditions. One, you keep Ron in the seven o'clock show. Let me do the late show. Let's just keep it going. Watch what we can do. It's about building relationships. Because, you know, you and I come from music, right? So it's, uh, this is an EP. This is going on the road. And and they were like, no, 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 no. And, and then I realized that, I, I, maybe they'll get mad at me for saying this. I don't care. They're cable guys. Cable sports guys don't understand Canada in terms of how the audience works, quite the way people who have spent a lot of time at CBC do. Hmm. Like CBC gets a lot of attacks, some deserved, lots of it not deserved. But one thing that we do is when we are here is talk to people in a different way. And so I was like, well, I have to make a choice here. I have to either change and adapt to them or just stay me. And I'm like, stay me. Stay me is the right page. What do you think they didn't get about the country? They tried to change this flagship kind of broadcast by bringing you in. Well, when I used to work, so long before I worked at Hockey Night in Canada, I worked at a sports radio station yeah. called The Fan. And 
then I worked at TSN. And one thing that I always, what every sport, not every, but many, many sports people I worked at the, the other networks did, all they did was complain about CBC's Hockey Night in Canada coverage. They thought they were better than Hockey Night. But I knew that they didn't respect what was important about Hockey Night in Canada, which is that it's actually the game matters, but the broadcast itself is more than the game. This is about who we are and who we are is changing. They're lucky I'm not the host of Hockey Night in Canada when the NHL decided to ban Pride Nights. And I remember doing a couple of interviews, one in particular where I got somebody to say some stuff and then the team freaked out, called the, the network and they pulled the interview down. They didn't even air it. So like I knew I was doing what I was paid to do, mm-hmm. which is to change it. In fact, the boss who ended up getting rid of me when they brought me in, I had lunch with him once and he said, the ratings are going up with people under 30 and with women when I was the host. And I went, yeah, well, because uh, they're welcome. I'm, they're welcome here. I was also using social media. They told me not to. One thing that one of the bosses told me was be less, be more conservative in your personal life and less music. And I went, you guys are crazy. You just don't understand how to reach people. You don't understand how important authenticity is. That's the thing they didn't get. And I, I, now I'm not saying everybody. There were, I worked with a lot of amazing people there, but I'm talking the higher ups. The higher ups didn't quite get what I think Hockey Night in Canada means or what it meant. I don't think it means the same thing as mm-hmm. it used to, but what it meant. And it's funny, when I was gone, I noticed now they're wearing some of the same suits that I wore. Now they're doing some of the format stuff that I had pitched them back then. And I don't mind that. Because the thing about Hockey Night for me was I took the job knowing it was going to end. I knew it was going to end. And I remember telling my manager, just give me the kind of deal where they have to pay me, no matter what happens, <laughs> which they did. Uh, and then when I left... I, well, actually, the day that I got the Hockey Night in Canada gig is the day that I started House of Strong. I was going to say, part of that was yeah. the benefit of creating this thing in your house, yeah. which was like this music series, totally. which turns into all the stuff you're doing now. Totally. What and was I, that? And I started it. Well, that happened because I was walking down uh, Young Street in Toronto, uh, past 228 Young, which is where I used to do a radio show from the edge, which is when you and I first mm-hmm. met. Mm-hmm. And then I made a right turn on the Queen, and I walked past Much Music, and then I made my way to my house because I still live very close to both those places. And the edge was some kind of homeware store now, I don't know. And much music, I don't know what show they put there, but they had boarded up the windows. So I said, this is stupid. Like who can go and see the, the whites of the eyes of their favorite musicians? So I said, ah, F it, I'm going to do it on my home. That's honestly what happened just because I saw those two things. So I started calling people and I said, hey, I want you to come play my concert. What was the pitch that you made to people? Because the, again, the list of people who have played yeah. in your house. Yeah is huge. And it, they're, they're big names. They're big names. Yeah. Well, the, how it happened was I happened to know Ian Asprey, who's the lead singer of the cult. And I said to Ian, I'm doing a concert series out of my home, which by the way, I hadn't done yet. And I said, I want you to, uh, I want the cult to play it. And he looked at me and he said, do you actually live there? And I said, totally. He said, audience? I said, yeah. He said, who? I said, strangers. He said, you'll tell people where you live? And I said, yeah. I said, because if I have skin in the game, then it has stakes. Yeah. Then it means something. And he said, okay, I'll do it. That's how it started. And the cult got us the kills. We booked a bunch of Canadian bands that we really liked. And then John Prine said yes. And then Elvis Costello came in. Robert Plant, Metallica came in. Like, Steve Earle Steve goes Earl, on and on and on. Steve Earle, dude. Cover. For me, when Steve Earle was playing and Gordon Lightfoot came over just to sit on the stairs and watch. And then Gordon came back for his own interview. Then he came back to watch Prine. So for me, it was just about, I just really care about connecting people to amazing artists, but I feel like you got to be in the room with them sometimes. 
And even if you can't travel to my place in Toronto, you feel like you're part of something intimate. I, I bumped into Scott Ian from Anthrax outside of a vegan burger joint in LA, and his kid was there and said, I loved watching Power Trip on your house. The, the Melvins played, which was one of our biggest videos. No one figured that would happen. But it was just because we... I think people realize we care about this. And that's it's yeah. very different, though. Then I mean, you're now working for a big technology company, yeah, Apple. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the thing with your show is that it's largely you mm-hmm. programming the music. It's not the machine. Do no, you know no, what I mean. It's all, so that it's idea of team, like, yeah. the human touch is very different than the algorithm. Which yeah. when I open up whatever app is going to tell me what I'm going to listen to next. Yeah, and I think you know the algorithm is really important because it's happening and you're going to. It's not going to change. But what the algorithm will never really give you is an honest mistake. On my show, I'll play a little bit of a band that I know most of the audience will hate. I know it, but I know that one person is going to hear it and it's going to rewire them. And I have this philosophy, which is every child left behind but one. Because I think with with music, that's really important. Don't play what their habits tell them they want to hear. Shock them, because that's the power of music. That's when I first heard Crass or... I don't know if you remember the, you know, we're of similar vintage, but the very first time you heard something that shook you to your core. Yeah, we used to, we would drive to the top of a hill to tune in CFNY. Yeah. And write down the names of the bands that blew our minds so that we could drive to Toronto and buy those records. Totally. And if, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. So let's fire them in the good way. And so Apple's been really great to me. They, They honestly, they just said, hey, why don't you come over and do what you do? And I went, okay. And so far, that's what's happened. It's been four so years. We're going to play a tune that you have picked for us. This mm-hmm. is uh, Single Mothers, James Gandolfini. Tell me about this. It's a Hamilton area band. I think they broke up in 2009, technically, mm-hmm. but they still play shows together. Uh, but what I like is I like a band that can tell me how they feel without it feeling like emo, because I don't want it to be self-aggrandizing. I want it to be a journey that can bring people in. They have that. The melodies are incredible. I love his voice. And I also just love how snarky they are. So yeah, James Gandolfini, it's off a record called Roy, I believe. Uh, this is a record I listened to a lot this past year. I'm hanging out a red suburban. What a classic kind of nonsense and a stunning type of nervous American gold at its glowing point. It's a tragic bunch of men that's kind of the tragic point. What a tune. Come on. Do you know my show, dude, Matt? I, I also, not just this band, but I, I do Daily Pup. Almost every day for everybody a year, I played a pup tune. Every single day. Uh, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> like, so you were recognized by the Governor General for uh, being a leading contributor in Canadian media and journalism, a renowned broadcaster and producer. Is it, Do you feel old when, when, when I read that? Well, time is a construct, so no. But <laughs> I know I'm old, man. I know I'm old. Um, I... No, I don't feel it. I don't feel it. And I ask you that in part because when you, you get to, we're of the similar vintage, yeah. the belief is, well, you've, you've consumed all the things that are exciting and yeah. you're not enthused by anything. And I listen to your show and I talk to you about music and I see what you post and you seem more excited about stuff now than, than you have been in, in, yeah. in your life. Yeah. I, my appetite for the human experience has never waned and never will, uh, I hope. So to me... I think music really matters. When the world catches on fire and, you know, three or four years ago, we watched everybody break down and I feel for everybody, but I'm not surprised. And I would say this somewhat glibly, but mostly good-naturedly, which is it's because you listen to the wrong music. Like if you grew up listening to a certain kind of music, you would have known this was coming. There's no war, but class war. That's the most important lesson I ever learned when I was 10. 
I got lucky that I, I was six, seven, eight years old when I heard Black Sabbath and Maiden and Priest and then those 10 when Metallica and Venom and Slayer came out. So Metallica, metal made me realize I was going to be okay. Punk music made me want to make sure you were okay. Hmm. And so I... I feel like it really matters, and you want great songs in your head. I don't just want to be marketed to. I want someone to care about my experience. So yeah, I never, I'll never lose that, dude. I just came back from Greenland, and I was in. Um, I went with a climate scientist from Canada who's working in Denmark, and we flew a helicopter onto the ice sheet. So we were up there in the Arctic, and we were talking about music on there. We were talking about how important the band against me was to both of us, and how punk rock mobilized us to care about the world. And here we are sitting on one of the only two ice sheets in the world, a place that is melting at a dramatic rate, and music is what connected us to it. I, I, I'll never lose the passion. What are you, gonna, what are you looking forward to this year? I'm gonna, I'm, honestly, I'm going, to, I'm going to do a thing. I'm going to launch it in, a, in, in about a month. I'm going to do a new thing on top of what I'm doing with Apple now, kind of live show that I'm going to put together. Mm-hmm. Very, very intimate. This is where I'm at in my life now, which is I, I want a connected group of people. We have an epidemic of loneliness out there. And so I've got this new thing I want to do with people. And that's going to happen very, very soon. So I'm excited. We'll look forward to that. You are a relentless promoter of Canadian culture. And that in part is why you were celebrated by the governor general. But it's also you've, done, you've had a great career and it feels like it's just catching fire in some ways. Congratulations. Thank you, my friend. It does kind of feel like I'm just getting started, which is, I know, stupid to say after doing this for 30 years, but why not? Like, just I, it has to always feel like the first time. And the moment it doesn't feel like the first time, I think you're in trouble. George, thank you. Always a friend, man. George Strombolophilus hosts the Strombo Show on Apple Music. He's one of the newest members of the Order of Canada. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.